Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. If you're denying that sex is binary and immutable, if you're looking at a woman and calling her a man, if you're claiming there are 27 different types of gender, if you're arguing that biological men have no natural advantage over biological women in sports like swimming and running and weightlifting, you're articulating such absurd, clearly intellectually indefensible points of view that it's a great way of advertising your fealty. Saying, I'm so committed to the cause of social justice, I'm prepared to completely humiliate myself intellectually. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Toby Young. Toby is a writer, educationalist and a warrior for freedom of speech. In February 2020, he founded the Free Speech Union, which counters cancel culture and defends people who are discriminated against or punished for expressing their beliefs. Toby has been involved in journalism for a very long time. He was a co-founder of the Modern Review in the 1990s, and he subsequently worked for Vanity Fair, The Sun and The Spectator. He is currently the London editor of Quillette magazine. During the first lockdown, he set up the website Lockdown Skeptics, which has since become the Daily Skeptic. He is also deeply involved in education. He founded the West London Free School and he served as director of the New Schools Network. So, Toby, we're coming up to two years, nearly two years, since you launched the Free Speech Union. And I want to kick off with a question where we just look back on what the free speech union has achieved and how much of an impact you think it has had. Because at the time that you launched it, I read a piece for Spiked saying this is an absolutely crucial project. This is what the country needs. Free speech is in a terrible state and we need to do something about it. I now think that even more now than I did back then, and I'm very glad that the FSU exists. I wanted to ask you just to begin, how much of an impact you think it's had on the understanding of freedom of speech and on the um, the understanding of the crisis of freedom of speech. Well, thanks for having me back on the show, Brendan. I think the Free Speech Union has had some impact. I think it's had some impact on the national debate, raising the salience of free speech as an issue. We have, I think, um, tried to exert some influence over the government's higher education freedom of speech bill telling them what we think should be in it and suggesting various amendments. And we're still doing that because it's still going through the parliamentary sausage machine. But I don't think we can claim any great credit for that piece of legislation. I think the Conservative Party were probably going to do that anyway. There was something in the manifesto about about doing it. I think um, we've done our best when we've intervened to help our members we get about, I'd say we get about 50 requests for help a week and we end up helping about half of them. And of those, maybe 
10% end up turning into protracted cases. And we end up, we usually end up winning, I'd say 75% of them. And we try and publicize our victories wherever possible. And, um, and, and even when we don't succeed, we try and draw attention to what's happening. And I think in some small way, we probably have raised awareness of the extent to which people are being penalized um, for exercising their lawful right to free speech and not just in universities, but across the public sector, even in the private sector. But it's particularly bad in universities, galleries, museums, heritage institutions, arts companies, particularly performing arts companies. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with with all of that. But I think, um, as you intimated in your question, where we've had the greatest impact is by fighting individual cases and coming to the defense of people uh, who find themselves either at the wrong end of a twitch fork mob or subject to an institutional investigation of some kind. And we've had a number of high-profile victories. We started off, we won a victory in the case of Amber Rudd after she was no-platformed at Oxford. Um, We ended up securing an apology for her and the society which had no-platformed her was struck off by the university proctors. Uh, We ended up securing a qualified victory for Selena Todd, the professor of modern history at Oxford, uh, who was no platform for being a gender critical feminist. We managed to get Exeter to review their free speech policies and procedures and to apologize to her. We won good victory in the case of Nick Buckley, the guy who set up a charity in Manchester to work with young and homeless people. He was uh, sacked by his charity, which he himself had set up um, because he wrote a, a blog post, which was mildly critical of BLM. And we ended up getting him reinstated. We helped um, an Isle of Man DJ um, who was suspended and placed under investigation again because he challenged BLM dogma. Um, He was reinstated and has actually just been elected to the Isle of Man Parliament. So we were particularly pleased about that. Um, I mean, I'd say that we've, I think we've probably probably been about um, maybe 25 high profile victories. And I think the, I think the impact that makes is to make institutions and employers a little bit more wary of trying to punish members of their institutions or employees for breaching various speech codes, you know, at the behest of outrage mobs. I think uh, I think we've given them pause for thought. Our strategy all along has been to try and raise the cost of doing the bidding of outrage mobs. The reason nine times out of 10 university vice chancellors, company CEOs, HR chiefs, the reason they do the bidding of outrage mobs is because they want a quiet life. Um, They want to make it go away. So if you can make it clear that actually whatever they do, it's not going to, it's not going to be a quiet life. And actually the cost of giving into the mobs is going to be greater than the cost of standing up for them and observing some sort of due process, then that seems to work quite well. Um, I mean, I think we were lucky in one respect in that um, the Free Speech Union was set up in February of 2020. And within a few months, we had both the lockdown Mm -hmm. and the BLM movement. And uh, maybe it sounds a bit callous to say lucky, but um, it meant that our timing was good because both of those things resulted in, I think, a, a sort of step change in the extent to which free speech is imperiled. I mean, I thought it was imperiled 
in February 2020. Uh, but things then got worse by an order of magnitude as a combination of the pandemic and the BLM movement. Anyway, we've, we've got about 9,000 members now. We publish research papers, briefing documents, FAQs. Uh, we've had a few in-person events, not many, but we've had quite a few online. You know, it's a growing organization, but I hope in due course, uh, if things uh, carry on along the trajectory they have been, that we will become um, a significant lobby group, which uh, will ultimately make a difference and uh, help people realize just how important free speech is, why it needs to be defended. Very good outline there. I want to dig out, dig down into some of the individual cases that you have taken up and some of the successes you've had. Uh, but before we do that, just to go back to the beginning of February 2020, uh, when the FSU was set up, I think you're absolutely right that it ended up being very timely. The clampdown on free discussion during the early days of the pandemic was just extraordinary. There was no leeway to put forward alternative views to the lockdown or to suggest that this was a rash policy. All of those things were demonized very, very swiftly. And then, of course, from June onwards, there was the BLM explosion, the tearing down of statues, the memory holing of controversial culture and uh, old comedy shows and everything else that took place during that rather hysterical moment, I think. So the, the FSU came along at, at just the right time, and it, it really uh, managed to hold a little bit of the tidal wave at bay in terms of the kind of censoriousness and authoritarianism of our time. But in relation to why you decided to set it up. Now, we've talked before about your own personal experience of cancellation, which can be a very horrible experience. Obviously, there were other things going on as well. Free speech has been in peril for quite a long time. Was there a particular issue or a particular experience that propelled you to set up this organization? Or was it just the general drift of censoriousness that was getting on your wick? When I was cancelled uh, at the beginning of 2018, when I was going through it, I became acutely aware that there was no organisation I could turn to for mm. good professional advice, both PR advice and legal advice, even career advice. So, you know, a simple thing like, should I apologise? Will that make things better or worse? And if I do apologize, um, how fulsome should that apology be? Uh, you know, it's really not obvious when you're in the eye of one of these social media storms. In my case, it sort of um, extended into the mainstream media too. It's really not obvious what the um, sensible thing to do is. You're naturally kind of quite anxious because, you know, your career is essentially on fire. You know, it, it, it is being burnt to the ground. Your reputation is being destroyed. And um, something you've spent, you know, 20, 25 years, in my case, trying to construct was, you know, was set fire to. Um, and uh, you're standing, you know, in this burning building. And every time you think you feel secure footing beneath your feet and you think things aren't going to get any worse than this, the floor gives way and you yeah. cascade down through the yeah. building. Um, and so it's, it's a kind of terrifying experience. And I think it, it's just being, being mobbed, being pursued by a mob who um, clearly have no kind of sympathy. They don't see you as another human being. They just see you as, um, you know, someone who isn't deserving of the ordinary protections of civilized society. You are fair game. Uh, and to be hunted by people who've decided that you are 
out with the kind of normal bounds of respectable society and they can do more or less anything they like to. I mean, it's never going to erupt in my case into kind of uh, actually being kind of torn limb from limb, but it, it nevertheless triggers this kind of primordial atavistic fear <laughs> of being pursued by an aggressive bloodthirsty mob who want to tear you limb from limb. I always compare it to that Mel Gibson film, Apocalypto. And I felt like, you know, the central character in that film running through the uh, rainforest with the kind of mob, you know, uh, only a few yards behind, but not having anyone to turn to, not knowing what to do and how to kind of put the fire out made me acutely aware of how great the need was for an organization like the Free Speech Union. Um, uh, and there was really nothing like it at that time. So almost from the moment it started happening, I kind of realized that um, uh, there was a gap in the market, if you will, for an organization like the Free Speech Union, because I clearly wasn't going to be the last person um, who was mobbed in this way. And it seemed to be kind of getting worse, not better. But it took me a while to actually kind of set it up. I mean, it wasn't until two years later that I actually set it up. And I think the probably the the galvanizing episode was Nigel Bigger um, at uh, Oxford, who himself um, was mobbed, I think, in 2017, when he came to defense of Bruce Gilley, a professor of political science at Portland State, who wrote a now infamous article in defense of colonialism for Third World Quarterly. He was immediately mobbed. Editors of Third World Quarterly received death threats. There was a concerted effort to uh, get um, uh, Bruce Gilley sacked. Anyway, Nigel came to his defence in the Times, and because he defended Bruce, uh, because he said, actually, you know, the British Empire isn't just an unending litany of exploitation, enslavement, appropriation, and so forth, but did do, you know, some good things. And um, we ought to take a kind of more nuanced view. It's a complex, you know, uh, historical issue and so forth. Uh, uh, he immediately got mobbed himself, and there were sort of various open letters signed by hundreds of historians and other academics calling for him to be defenestrated. So he'd gone through that experience himself, and he held a conference at Oxford in 2019 for academics primarily who'd gone through similar experiences. And the purpose of the conference was to really see if there was anything that could be done to protect academics who found themselves in a similar situation because Nigel, like me, had felt quite isolated when he was uh, being mobbed. And it was really out of that conference that the idea for the, well, not the idea, but that really sort of made me think, I really have to get on with this now. And um, Douglas Murray was one of the people who attended that conference. And when I set up the FSU, I asked Nigel to become the chair and Douglas, one of the directors, uh, which they both duly did. But, but initially, my, my, my sort of thought at the time was to just limit eligibility for membership to people who earned a living from the dissemination of ideas in some way. So not just academics, but also journalists, novelists, poets, and so forth, playwrights. But I didn't want to extend it beyond that initially. But then I realized it was silly um, to put a limit on it because it isn't just people involved in the dissemination and discussion of ideas who are targeted for cancellation. Um, you know, nobody is safe. Um, so it seemed um, silly to try and limit it to just uh, those people. So that was the sort of gestation and the, and the trigger uh, which galvanised me into actually setting it up. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. 
Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So you've just described cancel culture very well there. And your cancellation in 2018, of course, was in relation to old tweets that you wrote, uh, funny tweets, off the cuff tweets, tweets that while you were watching TV shows, and you know, people can find them no doubt in numerous news reports online. And because of the fury and the intense uh, fury that came your way as a result of that, you had to step down from the government's office for students. And there was a whole storm of controversy that lasted for quite a while. In relation to cancel culture, I wanted to ask you about why you think it has become so venomous and so vicious. Of course, there's there was your experience. More recently, there's been Kathleen Stock at uh, Sussex University, who seems to incite this extraordinary anger and venom and hysteria almost in the students who despise her and the activists who despise her simply because she says there is such a thing as biological sex. Or if you look at the um, hysteria that greets controversial speakers when they arrive on campus, there's often shouting and baying and, and a very kind of unstable response. And Cancel culture, as you've described it, is a mob. It's like a digital inquisition. It's this furious response to people who have controversial views or who make controversial jokes. Where do you think that comes from? Because to my mind, it it echoes very, very old forms of censorious violence, even more so than it echoes the censorship of the 20th century, which tended to be a bit more controlled, tended to be a bit more government-led, tended to be a bit more uh, logical, even though I would have opposed it as much as I oppose cancel culture. Whereas cancel culture seems to be slightly out of control, slightly unhinged, and uh, often very hateful. How do you explain that kind, those emotions that swirl around cancel culture? I think it's multifactorial. And um, as you say, it's not new. It dates back to you know the dawn of humanity, um, and, and, and often when I'm asked why um, free speech is so imperiled at present, the question to my mind isn't well, why has the commitment to free speech, particularly in institutions but also in law and just culturally, why has that declined so rapidly in the last twenty five years? I think the that's putting the question the wrong way round. And the right way to ask it is, well, how do we manage to sustain it uh, for so long? Because the default position for human communities seems to be to have very little tolerance for dissent. Anyone who tramples on the sacred values of that community, you know, typically is um, cast out um, or worse. So it's a relatively recent development that we've actually begun to tolerate dissent, promote discussion, open inquiry, um, uh, begun to value 
free speech and put various mechanisms and laws in place to protect it. That's that could be a historical aberration. Uh, I hope not. Um, but um, if you go back throughout, you know, the history of mankind, it, it certainly seems to be a pretty unusual state of affairs. And maybe we're just reverting to type. Um, well, I guess then the question is, well, why are we reverting to type? I think the the kind of key, I think, is the decline of Christianity. Um, and um, that's that, that I think is is the source of cancel culture and the erosion of free speech and indeed the kind of frenzied nature of attacks on people like Kathleen Stock, J.K. Rowling, myself. Um, I think, I think um, uh, superficially, um, uh, the woke cult is clearly a quasi-religious cult and has filled, for many people, the God-shaped hole left by the ebbing away of the Christian tide. But it's a religion without a church. And, and because it lacks a church, um, it's quite difficult to um, demonstrate your piety. Um, you can't do that by simply, you know, going to a particular place of worship um, every Sunday at 11 o'clock. Um, you can't do it by um, saying prayers before you go to bed, by saying grace before you eat. None of the rituals and traditions associated with Christianity, have they haven't grown up yet. I mean, there are plenty of of weird rituals, you know, like, you know, the racial self-flagellation ritual that kind of, you know, white CEOs seem to routinely engage in. But there is nothing like, you know, all the rituals and traditions that grew up around Christianity to enable its adherents to advertise their piety. So how do the members of the woke church advertise their party? Well, by attacking transgressors. Uh, and the more viciously and passionately they attack them, the more they're advertising their passionate commitment to the cause. And it's the uh, it's one of the ways in which they can do that. And the absence of, you know, an actual church and an actual body of kind of traditions and so forth. Um, I think that's an element of it. I think one of the benefits of living in a Christian culture, as we did um, in Britain and America across the Anglosphere until fairly recently, um, is that moral issues um, tended to be confined to uh, the church. People outsourced their conscience to the church. Um, and if there was a kind of moral question, if you were deciding whether someone was good or evil, that was really a religious question. That was a, that was a question that you, you were willing to defer judgment on. Uh, and, and that sort of, it confined and contained that kind of moral fervor to a particular part of our society. It compartmentalized it. And there was, a separation between church and state. And even though there was a kind of, um, you know, small M public morality in secular liberal democracies that had emerged within a kind of Christian context, um, it wasn't the big M public morality that we see today. And I think that surely plays a part. 50 years ago, you know, there wasn't um, a kind of an identifiable, tangible public morality that if you transgressed against put you on the outside made you an undesirable um and there is now and you can see you know it isn't just you know the high priests of the woke cult um who promote this morality within their institutions you see it being promoted across um you know as i said earlier galleries museums heritage institutions theater companies performing arts companies um you see it across the civil service uh, you see it across schools as well as 
universities. Uh, and you see it in now in the private sector too. And that's an unusual and new development, I think. You know, as recently as 25 years ago, the private sector was small C conservative, and that served as a sort of bulwark to the emergence of a kind of consensus about what the kind of dominant public morality should be. But now, you know, there isn't that, that bulwark's gone, and there is just a clear consensus. You, these are the sacred values of our society across all these institutions and professions. And if you offend against them, you are a bad person and you deserve everything that's coming to you. That, I think, it's, it's the emergence of the kind of woke public morality, the kind of the, 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 the fetishization of EDI and the embedding of those values across institutions and professions, which has made it, I think, harder to dissent. You know, it's made it easier for people to condemn dissenters as kind of morally repugnant uh, than it was kind of uh, 50 years ago. I think that's a, so I think it, it all really comes down to the decline of Christianity. And I think it may be, um, I mean, one of the, one of the attractive things, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a Christian myself and I'm sure that, you know, and I feel ambivalent about um, uh, the decline of Christianity. I don't think it was, you know, uh, an, un an, un an unqualified tragedy. Um, but one of the attractive things about Christianity is that um, Christians generally believe in forgiveness. You know, if you have sinned, if you have trampled on the sacred values of your church, there is a way back. You know, you, you express contrition, you do penance, and you're readmitted into the community that you've been temporarily expelled from. There is no equivalent mechanism in the woke church. If you transgress, if you offend, that is it. You are damned forever. There's no way back. They don't want to readmit you. It's like they've taken some aspects of Christianity, probably the worst aspects, and left by the side of the road um, the more attractive aspects, <laughs> such as the ability to forgive. And I think that partly fuels the kind of vituperative, spiteful, nasty, phlegm fleck rants against people like J.K. Rowling. They don't want her back. There's, they don't want her to recognize the error of her ways, repent with a view to readmitting her and rehabilitating, you know, her novels. They just want to expel her permanently from polite society. I think that's a very good description of um, if you have a religion without a church, then the it becomes ever more important to demonstrate your righteousness or your belief system through the destruction of other people or through holding up other people as the transgressors, which in turn shows that you believe in this, you're a good person, you're on the right track, you're on the right side. So the the, the lack of substance, the lack of uh, having a kind of central organization through which they can demonstrate their piety actually intensifies their need to find enemies and transgressors who can be very ostentatiously destroyed in the public arena. And one issue of transgression, which has become just an extraordinary article of faith amongst the woke mob is you've just uh, alluded to it there with JK Rowling is the issue of gender fluidity, the issue, the ideology of transgenderism and the idea that you can change sex and it's a good thing to do. And anyone who disagrees is a turf or a bigot or the scum of the earth, and they deserve to be cancelled. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that issue, because I think that's one of the 
most intense focal points of cancel culture today. We know that J.K. Rowling gets the most extraordinary abuse, um, including misogynistic abuse, rape threats, death threats. Kathleen Stock was subjected to similar. You mentioned Selena Todd earlier, who was also subjected to incredible hateful abuse. You've also represented uh, Rebecca Worshdale, who is a woman who was essentially demonized for wearing a t-shirt that says adult human female, which is the dictionary definition of a woman. You now cannot express the dictionary definition of what it means to be a woman. What is what is it about that particular issue? Obviously, this speaks to what you've just been describing, which is that destruction of transgressors. But what is it about that particular issue, the, the, the question of transgenderism, which excites so much intolerance? Uh, and which means that women in particular find their freedom of speech and their freedom of thought being curtailed in a pretty vile way sometimes. I think there are sort of um, several reasons, but I'll, I'll, I'll cite two. The first, I think, relates to what I was saying earlier. How can you advertise you're a member in good standing of the woke church? How do you signal that you are passionately committed to the cause of social justice. Well, one way of doing that, one way of communicating to, you know, uh, the other congregants uh, that you really are a pious individual is to say something which is patently absurd. (laughs) Intellectually humiliate yourself as a way of sort of abasing yourself at the kind of altar of the woke church. And it seems to me that what, what partly what makes this issue so attractive to the worshippers of this church is its intrinsic absurdity. You know, if you're denying that sex is binary and immutable, if you're looking at a woman and calling her a man or looking at a man and calling him a woman, uh, if you're claiming there are 27 different types of gender, if you're arguing that biological men have no natural advantage over biological women in sports like swimming and running and weightlifting, you know, you're, you're, you're articulating such absurd, clearly intellectually indefensible points of view that it's a great way of advertising your fealty. You're saying, I'm so committed to the cause of social justice, I'm prepared to completely humiliate myself intellectually <laughs> by maintaining these totally absurd, indefensible positions. I'm that committed. So I think that, that's, a, that's an element of that in it, Brendan. But I think also, you know, I, uh, I think it's what um, Douglas Murray in The Madness of Crowds calls um, the St. George in Retirement Syndrome. You know, after St. George has slayed the dragon, well, what's left for him to do? He goes around looking for kind of new dragons mm. to slay when he's, you know, he's, he, there aren't any. Um, and, and, and I'm sure that for, for this generation, one of the things that makes the trans rights issue so attractive is that they feel like it's their issue, an issue, a civil rights issue they can take ownership of. You know, they missed out on the 1960s when, you know, um, it was um, civil rights for people of colour. Uh, they missed out on the 1970s when it was civil rights for gays and lesbians. So this is their big, this is their dragon that uh, they were put on earth to slay. So I think it's, you know, it's attractive on that point of view. And they, yeah, of course, they talk about those other issues being unresolved and wanting to uh, protect the rights of other beleaguered, historically disadvantaged minorities. But, um, you know, that work has largely been done. You know, and they probably deep down know that. 
Um, uh, and the evidence is just overwhelming that we're nothing like as racist or homophobic a society as we were, you know, as recently as 25 years ago. Um, so they need a new issue, an issue they can call their own. And, and, and trans rights is it. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Any mention of JK Rowling leads me on to the question of who is being cancelled, because one of the most frustrating arguments that one hears from the woke mob is that uh, all these complaints about cancel culture, they say, firstly, they say cancel culture doesn't exist. It's a complete myth, even though there is example after example of it all the time. But they will say what this really is, is wealthy, usually white people who used to have cultural power and cultural influence who just don't like being criticized. So they will say Toby Young is a middle-class white man. He just don't, doesn't like being criticized by younger people. And he calls it cancel culture. And he says that it must stop. They obviously say the same about JK Rowling, who's incredibly wealthy, culturally influential, who is in a large part uncancelable because she is such an important cultural figure. And so they will make the argument that it's a myth. And this is just the old establishment moaning about being held to account. Now, of course, that is, in my view, complete nonsense. And I think one of that you mentioned earlier that you decided quite early on to expand the remit of the free speech union beyond people whose role in life is to disseminate ideas and culture and to broaden it out to pretty much everyone. And I think that was a very important thing for you guys to do because you've taken up cases of ordinary people ordinary working people who do an important job for society who have suffered cancellation for what they've said. So, for example, Jeremy Sleeth, uh, the uh, uh, train conductor who was unfairly dismissed because he said he didn't want to live in an alcohol-free caliphate in, in, in relation to COVID restrictions. Maureen O'Byrne, a librarian who uh, was sacked for objecting to the involvement of a Chinese state-owned firm in, uh, in a project at, at her library. Uh, we've mentioned Rebecca Worshdale, the who's an FSU member now, I think, who was banned from a pub for the crime of wearing a T-shirt saying adult human female. These are, uh, you know, ordinary good people who have suffered the brunt of this censorious culture. So can you uh, just explain to us, how do you see cancel culture working? It isn't just an attack on the old establishment, is it? It has a much broader role in terms of instructing society on what is supposedly the right way to think. Yeah, to present it as an overdue correction, um, because privileged white men have been dominating the conversation uh, for far too long. It's just a, a 
complete oversimplification. I mean, as you say, um, uh, most of the people who end up being cancelled um, are ordinary people, not particularly privileged people, unless you think all white people are privileged. Um, uh, you mentioned a few examples, but I think the cancellations that make it into the national press are often of quite high profile people. Um, so people, I think, um, come to the wrong conclusion uh, that it is just high profile people who are being cancelled. But the reason you don't see all the ordinary people being cancelled is because there are very few people around to stick up for them and they mostly lose their battles. Um, you know, hundreds of people um, uh, are cancelled every week. Um, uh, you know, they lose their jobs. Um, uh, they get demoted. They're put through um, a protracted complaints process uh, by their employers. And we're talking about, you know, train drivers, uh, people who work for the National Coal Board. It's extraordinary how many, how many uh, people from all walks of life um, uh, come to us uh, seeking help. Uh, these are people that most people don't hear about. What you see is the tip of the iceberg. And the bit of the iceberg you can't see, that isn't privileged, famous people you know, getting into difficulty for running their mouths. It's ordinary people who nine times out of 10 have um, inadvertently um, triggered some tripwire by breaching some speech code that they weren't even aware existed. A another reason why it's a gross o oversimplification to say it's just privileged white people is that it isn't just white people. Um, uh, it certainly isn't just heterosexual people. Um, you know, look at all the gender critical feminists who've been targeted for cancellation. Um, Germaine Greer um, was no platform. Peter Tatchell. Peter Tatchell was no platformed uh, for signing a petition opposing no platforming. <laughs> Probably the most prominent gay rights campaigner in the country. Plenty of African Americans and African Caribbeans, uh, African Britons have been cancelled. So it, it really isn't just uh, confined to white people. Everyone, everyone is vulnerable to cancellation. And one of the, you know, one of the ironies of kind of tracking um, cancel culture is that quite often the people who say cancel culture is just a figment of the imagination of kind of elderly readers of the Daily Telegraph, and it isn't a real thing, is that after denouncing people who've been, um, you know, making a fuss about cancel culture and claiming it's not real, they themselves are then targeted for cancellation. Yeah. Uh, not because they've said that, because they say something else. They, they trip one of these wires. Um, and, um, you know, they're the equivalent in this debate of the anti-vaxxers who get COVID and end up being photographed in the Daily Mail, you know, in the, in the <laughs> in intensive care. Yes, uh, that's that's very well put. And I think the other aspect of it is that, um, as you say, most people who get cancelled are normal working people but also there's that also that knock-on effect where it just chills discussion throughout society so there are growing numbers of people i suspect who don't say the things you're not supposed to say because they don't want to suffer those consequences that they see uh often befalling even wealthy influential people like jk rowling and i think one mm. of the purposes played by the intense hatred for jk rowling is to send that message to society more broadly well if this can happen to her imagine what can happen to you if you're just an ordinary woman with an ordinary job and you open your mouth on the gender issue imagine what will happen to you if even she can be subjected to so much hatred and bile and one one instance i wanted to raise with you one of the cases that you guys have taken on uh, which i find to be a really disturbing case is the case of hartoon tash the christian preacher who 
no one talks about anymore, even though this is a woman who was attacked with a knife at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park um, because she is a Christian preacher. She is very, very critical of aspects of Islam um, and she was attacked and it didn't become a cause celeb. Most people will have forgotten about it. Certainly the woke left doesn't ever talk about it and probably wouldn't rec- recognize her name if you were to say it to her. I think that's a, that, that's a good example of some of the um, issues that simply don't cut through with those who claim to be progressive or those who claim to care about women's safety or those who claim to care about uh, the, the right of women to uh, say what they want or to uh, appear in public without being attacked by a man. What is it, do you think, about that issue in particular, criticism of Islam or even criticism of radical Islam, which leads to a situation where you can even be attacked in public and you won't win the sympathy of the supposedly right-thinking sections of society? The woke cult, the woke belief system is riddled with internal contradictions. And one of those glaring contradictions is that Muslims are given a free pass by the woke. They don't care about um, homosexuality being illegal, punishable by death in some Islamic countries. Um, They don't care about um, young Muslim girls being forced to wear the veil. They don't care about um, misogyny um, within Islamic communities. And and I think that's that's the reason that Hatton Tash, they have a blind spot about Hatton Tash. You know, she's very critical of Islam. um, And um, she gets up and quotes from the Bible and criticizes her former faith um, at Speaker's Corner. Uh, And one of the most, you know, and and she's then attacked. And uh, one of the most shocking things about that case is that the police charged with um, protecting her um, have not done a great job. In one case, they actually, when she was attacked, they arrested her and took her off in a police van. And, um, you know, their defense of their behavior was, um, well, you know, we couldn't very well arrest the entire mob of Muslim men attacking her. That wouldn't have been practical. So the best way to protect her was to arrest her which is just ridiculous. Uh, And I think um, one thing I hope will change um, is that uh, the police will in due course um, receive some training um, uh, uh, about free speech. At the moment, um, the police since the McPherson report have been outsourcing their thinking to various lobby groups and advisory bodies like the College of Policing, lobby groups like Stonewall. Um, uh, And it's made it harder and harder for ordinary police officers to exercise their common sense. And I think it may be naive to hope that the police will recover their common sense, at least not overnight. Uh, So our best hope is to, alongside the training they're receiving from Stonewall and mermaids and gendered intelligence, they could receive at least some training in free speech. And they're taught what people's free speech rights are, what you can lawfully say. uh, And hopefully if that happened, fewer Christian preachers would be arrested for disturbing the peace. Just in relation to the role that the police increasingly play, and and I think this demonstrates the fact that the problem of censorship in 21st century Britain goes beyond, obviously, cancel culture mobs, which tend to be fairly informally constituted, although very powerful and very uh, vicious. Um, and it touches upon the law itself, the implementation of the law, 
um, and the role of the police in, in actually seeking to control what people are allowed to say and in some cases what people are allowed to think. So we people will be familiar with the case of Harry Miller, who was contacted by the police after he made critical comments about some of the transgender movement and they told him essentially this is the wrong way of thinking, you shouldn't think like this, you shouldn't express those ideas. Uh, of course, there have been instances where Christian preachers have been arrested uh, for preaching publicly in town squares and making comments about the sinfulness of homosexuality, for example. Um, and there are non-crime hate incidents, which ought to send a shiver down the spine of anyone who has read 1984, which is this notion that even if what you say falls within the bounds of the law, so it's therefore not a criminal situation, you can still, it can still be clocked, it can still be logged, it can still be kept on a file because it's judged to be hateful or problematic in some way. Um, that's pretty serious, isn't it? When you have not only these marauding mobs um, dragging people down for saying the wrong thing, but large swathes of legislation or, or police willingness to interfere in the realm of thought and speech. Yes. So non-crime hate incidents date back to the hate crime operational guidance issued by the College of Policing in 2014. Um, it has no statutory basis no. at all. This is a body that uh, is a wholly owned company by the Home Office. And um, it issued this guidance um, in 2014, instructing the police that if someone reports a hate crime, um, the police should investigate it. And if they conclude that no crime has been committed, um, they should in every case, um, regardless of how vexatious the complaint, record it as a non-crime hate incident. Uh, and the rationale is that um, if someone's complained uh, then uh, and they're a member of a protected group, then their perception that the um, incident in question was motivated by hostility towards their protected group is itself enough for the police to be able to conclude that it that it was a hate incident? It was motivated by hate. Uh, perception is enough. Didn't need to meet any other test. And so the police, in every case, were instructed by the College of Policing to record uh, uh, these episodes as non-crime hate incidents if they concluded that no crime had been committed. Um, and um, they record them in such a way, as you as you said, um, that they show up on people's criminal records. So if you apply for a job working with vulnerable people, or if you apply for a teaching job, for instance, and your employer asks you to carry out an enhanced DBS check, uh, whereby you have to disclose your criminal record to your prospective employer, uh, they can show up. They don't show up in every case. It's at the discretion of chief constables. But in some cases, they show up. And during the recent Court of Appeal case, the QC for the College of Policing was asked whether it would be appropriate to disclose the NCHI recorded against Harry Miller um, if he sought employment as a teacher working with vulnerable people. Um, and the QC said yes. And worth remembering that Harry's sin was to retweet a comic verse about transgendered people. And the complainant was a trans woman whom the tweet wasn't directed at and who wasn't copied into the tweet. She just saw it and complained. And on that basis, he had this NCHI recorded against him. And the bench at the Court of Appeal said, what about a gender critical feminist professor? If she had an NCHI recorded against her because she'd expressed gender critical views in the public square, would it be appropriate to disclose her NCHI if she applied for a job at another 
university? To which the QC replied, yes. You may think, well, how big a problem is this? How many NCHIs have actually been recorded against people's names? Well, the answer is um, a huge number. So the Daily Telegraph did an FOI request. It sent it to all police forces in England and Wales, I think the year before last. And um, they discovered that between 2014 and 2019, in that five-year period, there'd been 120,000 non-crime hate incidents recorded, which is an average, I think, of 67 a day. And since then, you can bet your bottom dollar, there will have been tens of thousands more recorded. So it's a huge problem and has a hugely chilling effect on free speech. If you say something that provokes a member of a protected group, um, that if they complain and accuse you of committing a hate crime, uh, that that will eventually be recorded against your name as an NCHI, that, that, that serves as a huge deterrent on um, expressing yourself freely. Uh, I mean, a really chilling effect. And, and the Court of Appeal ruled in Harry's, Harry Miller's favour, but they didn't say that it was unlawful uh, to always record NCHIs in such a way that they will show up in enhanced DBS checks. Uh, they merely said that um, making it mandatory for them to be recorded isn't right. It should be at the discretion of senior officers and it should be proportionate. So in some cases, um, uh, they shouldn't record uh, uh, NCHIs against people's names, but not in every case was it wrong. And they, and they said that um, Parliament will now have to approve a code of practice. So they're still, they're still out there, and they still have a chilling effect on free speech, but we're gradually, thanks to um, Harry's courage, um, and we, we've supported Harry throughout, and we offered to, we were pledged to, to, to pay his um, costs had the Court of Appeal decision gone the other way. But um, thanks to Harry's courage and, and tenacity, uh, we are making some progress on, on that issue. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. Okay, Toby, a couple more questions for you. The first uh, is on something you mentioned earlier, which is the lockdown and the fact that it came in quite soon after the Free Speech Union was founded. And some of us, a very, very, very small number of people expressed scepticism about the lockdown as a policy back in March and April 2020. And I, I remember that very vividly being a very difficult time to have open, frank, honest discussions about what was the best policy in relation to a health crisis like COVID-19. And I get this feeling that a little bit of a reverse ferret is starting to happen in some sections of society who are now looking back on that era, the, the first lockdown we had, and are starting to ask, did it have to be so severe? Did we have to let people die on their own? Did we have to uh, tell people to stay away from hospitals, which led to a spike in deaths in private homes? Uh, did we have to have a situation where you just couldn't visit an elderly loved one in a care home under any circumstances, or could we have done it differently? So a bit of a reverse ferret seems to be happening. Carl Hennigan refers to it as the great revision, and he thinks that's coming soon, where people will distance themselves from their fulsome support for the first lockdown. But the problem, I think, 
even if we ended up in a situation where there were some form of restrictions, some form of lockdown or some form of control in order to limit the spread of this virus that was unpredictable and not very well known at the time, surely the problem was the absence of proper freedom of speech and the ability to put forward alternatives, weigh up different ideas, to wonder out loud if perhaps there was a different way. I would argue that in a time of crisis, like the COVID-19 crisis, surely freedom of speech becomes more important rather than less important to ensure that society doesn't do something that is potentially self-destructive and dangerous. I agree with Carl Hennigan. I think there is a retreat taking place uh, and that all the most um, zealous advocates of the lockdown policy and associated COVID restrictions are now beginning to distance themselves um, from the policy. Um, it was it was significant that Wes Streeting said on one of the Sunday morning talk shows recently that he didn't think, he's the Shadow Health Secretary, that he doesn't think we should ever lock down again. And Keir Starmer claims that he never called for going further than Plan B restrictions. He didn't think, you know, Omicron uh, was going to be so devastating uh, that we needed to go beyond Plan B, which is a complete revision of history. He absolutely did say that. And um, I compare it to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the communist control system across Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. It was really hard during that febrile period when the House of Cards was collapsing to find anyone not merely willing to defend communism, but um, who would admit to having ever defended it. And it, it, you get the impression that soon, you know, it's going to be really hard to find anyone who takes any responsibility uh, for um, the lockdown policy and the enormous costs associated with it, not just economic costs, but human costs, such as you, you mentioned already. And I, I hope that um, this historical revisionism, this change of heart about the wisdom of the lockdown policy um, will be accompanied by a realization that the reason we rushed into this policy uh, and the reason it wasn't properly debated and considered, the reason some of the costs weren't adequately foreseen is in part uh, because there wasn't a proper public debate, because dissent at the time uh, was quashed. Um, Parliament for large parts of the first lockdown was actually suspended. Ofcom issued coronavirus guidance, which cautioned broadcasters to be very careful about having people on who challenged um, the official COVID narrative. And the sort of rationale was um, that if you allow a genuine public debate to take place, um, if you allow people onto the airwaves, into newspapers and magazines, who, who, who put an alternative point of view, who say maybe the cost of the lockdown outweighs the benefits, maybe you aren't going to be able to suppress this virus, anything like as effectively as you imagine these measures will, um, uh, that it would have undermined public confidence in the advice being disseminated by 10 Downing Street, the National Health Service, the Department of Health, various public authorities, that would have meant less compliance and more deaths. Um, uh, but that sort of presupposed the outcome of the debate, which had never happened, saying clearly the lockdown policy is the right policy. And unless people observe, unless people comply with 
these policies, these draconian restrictions, people will die. Well, you can't jump to that conclusion. That was the debate we never had. But they sort of presupposed the outcome of the debate that never took place and said, because of that, we can no longer debate it because even debating it is dangerous. And I was often accused, I was one of, you know, there were, there were a handful of people um, who, you know, back in the spring of 2020 were openly skeptical about the lockdown policy and the other measures the government were taking. And we were demonized. I was frequently told I had blood on my hands. And it wasn't just journalists like me, it was distinguished scientists like Ginetra Gupta, Martin Kuldorf, Jay Bhattacharya, any, any, I mean, they were particularly singled out um, for criticism. And yet we now know that Anthony Fauci and others actually, to a certain extent, orchestrated the smearing of the original signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, you know, extraordinary for, you know, eminent scientists in positions of public trust, commanding these huge budgets funded by the taxpayer, tribunes of science who supposedly are responsible for securing the public's trust in science, were engaged in what was essentially a kind of black ops to try and smear and discredit scientists who just disagreed with them. Uh, and anyway, it, was, it, was, uh, it seemed to me to be an example of how cancel culture was extending beyond, particularly in universities, extending beyond uh, the social sciences and the humanities and the arts and into the hard sciences. Um, and that was a really dangerous development. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're now paying the price for the suppression of public debate, uh, even scientific debate uh, about that policy. I mean, one of the most shocking things was the activities of the Conservative MP Neil O'Brien, who in between government jobs, when he was a backbench MP, set up a website which was designed specifically to smear and discredit anyone dissenting from the official COVID narrative. Not just me, but Alison Pearson, uh, Shinetra Gupta, Peter Hitchens. Uh, it was extraordinary. It was a kind of smear operation orchestrated by a Conservative MP um, who's now gone on to join the government again. I mean, it just seemed so improper for a Member of Parliament to be actively engaged in the suppression of public debate about the most important public health policy of our generation. Absolutely. And I think that whole period, especially during the first lockdown, but then subsequently in response to the Great Barrington Declaration, authors who you've mentioned, really showed the importance of John Stuart Mill's insight, which is that it is only through having the complete liberty of contradiction that you can assume you are right and therefore that your policy should be enacted. That is the only way in which you can justly interfere in society. If you create the conditions for the complete liberty of contradiction and discussion and debate, that's the only purposes on which you can assume that you are doing a truthful, good thing. And that just didn't happen. And I think restoring those conditions of, of liberty and contradiction and debate is absolutely essential going forward. Toby, my last question. You mentioned uh, Neil O'Brien there. One of the things I find very frustrating about contemporary censorship and contemporary cancel culture is that it often comes from the left. 
Um, I consider myself as having come from the left, and I I think that the left was traditionally in favour of freedom of speech, especially the countercultural left in the 1960s and the 1970s. They were often at the forefront of arguing against the censorship of erotic literature or dangerous art or political campaigning and other forms of, of speech. And now the left has become the most rabid of censors and and the the leaders of the kind of cancel mob and i find that very dispiriting and and frustrating but i wanted to ask you how you think the right is doing and particularly how you think the conservative government is doing because my personal view is that they could be making far more leeway on this issue in relation to wokeness and intolerance and the way in which a relatively small group of influential culture warriors are able to set the agenda in terms of what we're allowed to say and what we're not allowed to say. Could the Conservative government be doing more in terms of countering this intolerance and demonstrating to the public that they are on the side of freedom of speech and reasoned thought? They they certainly could, Brendan. I would give um, this government, I think, six out of ten um, when it comes to defending free speech. And the reason it's as high as that is because I do think the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill will make a difference. It will only apply to English universities, but it will make a difference not just because it strengthens free speech protections on campus, but because it creates various enforcement mechanisms for ensuring that um, universities discharge that new, stronger legal duty. Um, So it will create a free speech champion in the Office for Students, um, whom academics and students who feel their speech rights have been breached can complain to, and he'll have investigatory powers and the power to fine universities, he or she. But it also creates a new law of tort, whereby people who find themselves out of a job, for instance, because of something they've said for exercising their lawful right to free speech or kicked off a university course, will be able to take a university to court. We think, you know, at the Free Speech Union that it could be improved in various ways, but nonetheless, it's a great start. And I think uh, the government deserves credit for at least trying to do something about the free speech crisis in universities. Um, But on other fronts, they haven't done as well. So, you know, they could have done more, I think, to uh, get rid of NCHIs. Um, the government has brought forward an amendment to the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which will hopefully reduce the number of NCHIs and place them under some kind of statutory supervision, which is, you know, a, a good start, but not nearly enough. They just need to scrap the recording of them in such a way that they can show up on people's criminal records and enhance DBS checks. Seems that's a no-brainer. Why haven't they done it? But also really alarming is the online safety bill. I'm sure you've discussed this many times on your podcast, but um, as you know, Sajid Javid, when the white paper under Theresa May uh, was unveiled, said that that he wanted Britain to be the safest place in the world to be online. And um, as things stand, um, the online safety bill is a census charter and um, will make it um, much harder to exercise your lawful right to free speech online than offline. And the Free Speech Union is lobbying to change the online safety bill in various ways to try and safeguard freedom of speech. And I think it can be. It can be improved. I mean, I think in in, in the best of all possible worlds, we wouldn't want to uh, regulate social media to such an extent that it's now, it's safer to go online in Britain than in North Korea. Um, uh, But, um, you know, Given where we are and what's politically possible, I hope that we can at least improve it and safeguard uh, freedom of speech. But uh, it remains to be seen. That's a test 
facing the government. Another test is um, the Law Commission of England and Wales um, recently concluded a consultation about um, reforming our hate crime laws, and they've proposed bringing forward a hate crime bill very similar to the hate crime bill that became the Hate Crime and Public Order Act in Scotland uh, that got royal assent last year, and which means um, uh, that Scotland now has less free speech, I think, than any other country in Europe, including Hungary. Um, uh, and actually, the bill that um, the Law Commission has proposed, the hate crime bill for England and Wales, would go further uh, than, than the Scottish Hate Crime and Public Order Act. So that's another test um, that the government will face. And that's something that the Free Speech Union, I hope, will be at the forefront of lobbying against. Toby Young, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.